Hello and welcome to Open Door Films, a podcast that you all know is for filmmakers, film fanatics, and lovers of cinema from all over the spectrum. The guest I have today has made a name for himself in said spectrum as both a lover of cinema and an artist always happy to further embrace the variety that gives cinema even more spice and even more life. Christ, is that not lame? But being serious, the guest I have today is Darren Foley of Must See Films, a YouTube channel focused on film analysis, creativity, and the kind of artistic invigoration that just makes the experience of watching your favorite films while embracing new gems even more exciting. I've followed Darren's work for a number of years, and having spoken to him on the podcast has only helped me garner a greater appreciation for movies, writing, and just the act of creation itself that every artist struggles with, but they can't help but enjoy confronting as opposed to having a blank page or a blank canvas looming over their fonts. In our discussion, Darren and I discussed his journey in filmmaking, film education, his writing process, and the experimental approach he takes to his YouTube channel, Must See Films, whenever he's creating a video essay. Must See Films is a great YouTube channel and one I highly recommend for anyone who loves movies in the process of garnering even greater appreciation for all the wonder, creativity, and the excitement they can bring for both audiences and artists alike. In addition to his journey as a filmmaker, Darren and I talked about a lot of great films, which is always a joy when in the presence of a film fan. I'm sorry for geeking out, but I doubt anyone can resist the temptation when they're in the presence of an artist they've come to admire for such a long time. Darren is among many of the creators I've come to respect over the course of my journey as a writer and hopefully among the many I hope to speak with as I continue whatever this podcasting thing is. It's hard to tell for for anyone who's embarking on a creative venture because there's always going to be an experimental quality to it and both me and Darren related to this with regards to our own channels because there's nothing necessarily definitive and when it has that experimental quality Although it can be terrifying because it is self-regulated, it does give you a lot of leg room to be creative rather than being constrained by anybody else you're tied to. And it does give you a lot of insight as to not having a definitive outlook on the, what this channel will be, what, what we're making will essentially be. In my case, I mean, I still don't know where this podcast is going, but it's fun to experiment with. In addition to this podcast, I hope you all check out my Substack, where I regularly publish film reviews, poetry, short stories, artwork, and even some NFTs. If you're new to this channel, then feel free to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Every word of mouth does help me and the guests I'm interviewing. And I think artists like Darren, as well as the many others I've come to admire over the years, deserve that level of support. If you ever wish to get ever get in touch and even be a guest on the podcast so we can just sit back and talk film, then feel free to message me via email down below. Also, as a thank you for taking the time out of your day to hear me spout BS that hopefully helps me continue pretending I'm an intellectual rather than just a crock, then please do look at the gift links I've left down below. I don't know how familiar each of you are with Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, even though I'm just all Bitcoin, but I still like to share these with people so they can have a chance to make some extra hard money. And yes, eventually I will be, have episodes where I talk about Bitcoin, even though I really haven't talked about it in prior episodes. But I'll get to that, because I do have respect for the technology and how it can open many doors for people out there eager to do more than just make money. Thank you to the... No, sorry, tongue twist right there, but let's go on with the show. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to open your mind as well as your heart to voices that have never been shy of their love for the movies and all the spice that gives them life. Oh god, not even making an ending note makes it sound any less lame. But still, enjoy the show. Mm-hmm.
Okay. Well, um, I mean, so yeah, Darren, just tell, just where did it all start? Because I've actually, I actually went back to some of your old videos from your channel and I was amazed to find out that even your punch drunk love was 10 years old. Yeah. 10 years, which is like crazy. Um, cause a lot of people, and I even went through a phase of trying to be like a successful YouTube type person. Um, when it was all about trying to hit views and have videos that would be, um, more applicable to different people and things like that but the the whole channel has been a bit of like an experiment and has always been like a byproduct of my own kind of study of film because i was always interested in film um but then thought i'm never going to really figure it out myself and i never really i'm going to go to like university or college to learn this kind of thing because i was already in uh, university learning something completely different so i kind of felt like i'd already chosen a path but then had this kind of interest of film and secretly didn't want to admit to anybody that that was like something i wanted to pursue and um didn't know anybody that was a successful artist or had any success in, in anything film related like being in Scotland the film scene is very small and there isn't a lot of huge success stories with things like that so it was always kind of like a hidden interest so I went through a period of making music videos and learning how to become technical with film and the the channel was really a, a byproduct of tr trying to study things on my own and trying to figure things out a little bit and some of the first videos that I ever made I used to use like a a digital camera for taking pictures but it had like a 10 second uh, video feature on it and I was big into basketball at that time and uh, we would make a little mixtape of people doing like different dunks and different moves and I would snip it together with music and those were like the first little edit and mixtapes of uh, videos that was the first chance to imagine something in your mind and then put it into action through going out and getting shots and stuff like that so that, that's kind of where the filmmaking bug kind of started. My God, that actually sounds, it's very interesting you mentioned that uh, your channel was like an experiment because in many ways this podcast for me is an experiment because in addition to these interviews, I'm doing, I started adding film reviews to them. I mean, I'm not like doing them scripted. I'm just like winging it because I don't know if you, I guess in a lot of ways, someone who's been an inspiration for me in podcasting or just my own artistic taste because I don't see myself as a filmmaker so much as a writer. I mean, I like writing screenplays. I like writing short stories. I self-published a poetry book and I don't know if you, if you're interested in poetry, I'll send you a link to it. And I work as a freelance writer. So for me, it's just been writing in whatever mediums I can because it's, it, but yeah, when it comes to podcasting, one of the big inspirations for me was Joe Rogan. And I love that he just wings it so much that he makes it look so effortless. Not to say that you should just like do it in a mediocre way, but just like say, fuck it, not care whether it's perfect because I, in addition to your channel, I mean, I, I don't know what other, what film YouTubers do you follow that you like in particular? Um, the reason I made a lot of video essays, cause I was always really fascinated by like the video essays, like as a format and like how, how it would ex explain a movie by showing you the movie and give you commentary and show you the details, like in real time. Like always, when I first started studying film, I used to go to libraries and read, um, film theory books. And that was kind of like my first introduction to like, this is a chapter on lighting and this is how lighting can be used to enhance story or create mood or all these kind of things. And that was like one way to learn. It was kind of like note taking and things like that. But video essays were like another level because it would show you in real time the exact ideas and what was behind a director's thinking. And, and this is the result that's created for an audience. 
Um, and my first introduction to all that kind of things was uh, Rob Ager. I don't know if you know who Rob oh. Ager is. He's like the original OG video essayist. He was doing this like 10, 15, 20 years ago before anybody was doing it. And in recent years, video essays have become cool and like super popular and they're just everywhere. But a lot of them are like very surface level in terms of like- um, They've kind of become like the new cable television in a sense. Yeah. In a way where it's not advertised. Yeah, especially if you're like a film nerd and you want to like share something on a film that you love. Um, There's tons of videos out there. They're all about the kind of presentation and the glamour and the editing of side of things. But not all of them go into kind of some depth and analysis and give you something like concrete from it. But my original introduction to that kind of stuff was through Rob. And his, um, his stuff is like crazy deep in terms of like um, analysis and digging into things and uh, the certain movies that he would pick up, he, he analyzed a lot that's of Kubrick movies. Yeah, yeah. And that's how I started to kind of realize that there was this style of filmmaking out there that was, um, one was like delivering an entertainment to an audience. And then there was a secondary appreciation as a filmmaker and an artist. But then even beyond that, there was like a hidden narrative of other things that, um, filmmakers were trying to communicate through the work that they do. And Rob was the first person to like open my eyes to those kind of things. And it was really through learning his format of presentation. I thought I could do that, but with movies that I love. And so that's what originally started with the, the punch, punch drunk love video. Um, and I thought I could mirror that same kind of presentation. Um, and that's how, that's how the video essays originally started. But like you were saying about, um, it being an experiment i never realized i was going to make like a film analysis channel or a video essay channel because they didn't really even exist at that point so i just started making film analysis things and then i did some uh, solo podcasts and then interviews and then film reviews and top five lists and just like just anything just because it, it was nice being able to scratch that itch of being creative um, and then having something that you could share and then film people from around the world would find it and then you would chat with the film person and it would be great, especially being in Scotland where I didn't know that many other people that were like film enthusiasts. Um, so that was a great like networking thing for me to, to reach people from the other parts of the world and have people contact me kind of like yourself being like, oh, I love film and you love film and like, let's chat about it. Um, I must tell you this real quick, just since we were talking about the punch drunk love is the, the, the guy who wrote the original article that was this idea of uh, Barry Egan from punch drunk love and Superman and the kind of connection, he contacted me recently in, in the comments on a video. And he said, I wrote that original article that that video is based on. And I refer to in the video. And I was like, no way. Like I had seen it and then made the video from that, but never knew the guy. And so he reached out and he said, yeah, we should chat film. And so I, um he replied back to him and so hopefully get a chance to to talk to him but like if it wasn't for him writing his little uh kind of blog post on it i don't know if that the channel even would have started on that punch drunk love episode you know that is a very that is a very fascinating coincidence because when i first saw that video i was just blown away by the idea that maybe even paul thomas anderson is self-conscious about that because it just there's too many hints to suggest that he wouldn't incorporate that because when you look at Anderson's cinema, just the diverse range of films he's done has so many layers to it. And when you, and we, I'm sure that a surface level perception of Anderson by any film fan, if they ever, but if they didn't see him, would be some film aficionado 
But yeah, when you see him in interviews, he looks like a re- really laid back, totally normal guy you think would be probably listening to classic rock while smoking a cigar. But uh, yeah, that punch drunk love video. And may I ask, do you feel that your work in video essays and the experimental quality has helped you in your filmmaking process? And uh, are there any film, is there anything you'd like to talk about with any films you're working on? Yeah, the, the video essays was a really good way for me to kind of document what I was figuring out at different stages of the journey. So like in the early days, it was, I was just kind of doing uh, film analysis and then it was kind of figuring out everything that I thought that was going on in a film more from like a director's point of view in terms of what you would plan and what the end result would be. But then later on, it got a little bit more technical in terms of um, trying to figure out how they would get certain shots and how this, the sound and the lighting would work. And so it became more practical. And then in the later videos, it would be more story orientated. Um, I went through a phase of making like, um, once I kind of got over the inner conflict of admitting to people that I wanted to be creative and make things, um, I went on like a, a run of making like uh, music videos, 48 hour film competitions, documentary short films. And I just went boom, 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 and made like lots and lots of stuff. And that's kind of when I realized that you could film anything that you could come up with, especially with music videos being very creative and you could kind of do anything. And I realized that the, the limiting factor then for continuing as a filmmaker was learning story and learning how to be a writer and learning to work within a, a narrative and then making videos that then have that strength behind it. So all of the video essays at that point shifted to become into story re- related. And that became like my focus for the next couple of years, really, because uh, I'm still figuring it out myself because I've never been like a writer or didn't feel confident as a writer. And then me and my wife had our son. So we had to juggle kind of family life with like full-time work. And then also like a creative uh, endeavor of labor of love that you were interested in. And so the main thing I could have enough bit of time for myself there was to not really make video essays, but learn how to write a bit more and read screenplays and try to write screenplays and write a bunch of little screenplays that never go anywhere, but then write a couple of full length screenplays that are just like a huge learning experience in terms of like, craft and discipline and commitment to actually doing it and whether you feel like it or not to try and show up and produce something or reflect on something and um that that became uh the only thing i could manage time wise but also the exact thing that i needed to learn in terms of like the filmmaking toolbox of things story became like the most important thing to me to kind of work on next and how does your writing, what, how would you describe your writing process? Because everybody has their own, I mean, there's like this fixed narrative idea of, of that you should write every day or a certain amount of pages and certain amount of words. But what is your process? Because I know it's, bec- it's become much more open now as to how to go about the approach. In fact, I liked your video on Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way and the morning pages, because in addition to my own writing, I also do journaling, just more like a just like a psychological form of meditation. In fact, I when I recently saw the Batman this year, I did like that he did that same thing himself, just like the the Kurt, Kurt Cobain, like I mean, like Kurt Cobain, who was an inspiration for Batman, who actually journaled himself. Granted, his journal is probably more depressing. Yeah, yeah. I also um, journal a lot. Like I probably got, I think it's like twenty five to twenty six, twenty seven 
and full notebooks of like uh i think i started journaling in 2014 mm. and it would just be like stream of consciousness whatever it is going on in your mind that you want to get out onto paper and it's really like a thinking exercise of like um by putting it on paper that process somehow makes it feel better in your mind because you've digested or processed or kind of got to the bottom of what it was instead of it just being like this all the time like crazy it feels like you're reaching some sort of solution by processing whatever kind of emotions or whatever project you're working on and sometimes it can be very like emotional but sometimes it can be very practical in terms of like planning a project that you're working on or uh, time management or like whatever it is in terms of like screenwriting writing um i i can't do any writing until i kind of know the overarching aim of what a project is going to be out i find it i find it fascinating that people can just sit and write and they've got a scene and i'm like how, how did you come up with characters and how do you know your dialogue is going to fit to what the whole point of the purpose is and especially from learning like um i i studied finished movies and deconstructed them and saw how they all worked um i found it really difficult to approach writing a story that didn't already fit into like a finished thing so it was hard to write first drafts that were messy and then learn how to shape them into something that then fit towards like a like a climax or like a theme and so for me i did lots of like um outlining and then kind of brainstorming in terms of like uh, different acts and making sure you were hitting different points and once i had a pretty clear idea where everything was going then i could kind of sit and do scene by scene um and i found writing every day was kind of the most um definitely the most productive way but it's the most unforgiving way because if you kind of you say i'm going to write as much as you can you inevitably find excuses or, or don't find the time but if you kind of commit to yourself that you have to show up every day whether it's like time at your desk or like so many pages just the act of doing that even the bad days lead to good days a couple of days later. So it's, um, I feel like the commitment to that is actually the reward that figures things out like as you go. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of how it, it's not easy though. I find I, uh -huh. writing is the most difficult part for me in terms of like filmmaking. Um, but, but that's probably the case for all filmmakers is the, the weight and merit of a film is generally down to how well written things are. Like things can be flashy and great cinematography, but if the story's lacking, it generally is flat for an audience. So story really is like at the heart of everything that has any quality or, or merit to it, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it took me two and a half years to write a feature length and I've still been trying to auction it and I've shared it with loads of people and hoping something happens and I'm writing well, I've written a lot of short film scripts just for experimental purposes. And if you want me to share them with you, because I just did them for fun. And the one I'm currently writing, I've been writing that for three and a half years. And I just keep going back and forth. And for me, I mean, occasionally I outline, but it's, but I just, even if I haven't outlined anything for any particular scene, I just have to write to keep my sanity. And I was, and I felt some sense of calm when I watched an interview with Rod Steiger. I hope I'm saying, no, not Rod Stutt. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, the guy who created the Twilight Zone and how he had a similar approach. And I actually wanted to ask you, are there any particular screenwriting books that you ter always turn back to? Because 
some, I mean, you've noted a few of your notable favorites and I've, I don't re remember if you did that in your interview with Michael Tucker from uh, Lessons from the Screenplay, which I really enjoyed. And I'm amazed he hasn't made any videos on Lessons from the Screenplay in a while. Yeah, I, I asked him to um, be on the podcast as an interviewer, like right at the start after like he'd done like two or three videos and he wasn't like big time yet and asked him to be on. And um, I could see that his channel was going to pop just because of how like accessible and how well presented and polished all his work was. And, and he's one that always is strong with the depth and analysis and like always been a fan of his channel. The one book he mentioned um, somewhere in the middle of his work and that I arrived at at some point, which was like a, a great find for me was um, creating character arcs by, well, what's the lady's name? Uh, K.M. Wylan is the, the oh. lady's name. She, um, her book's amazing because... It, twice. Yeah. The thing that blew my mind with her book was how she connected plot and character and how they're the same. And when you're figuring things out as a writer and you're trying to like look at all these different components, it's very good to think, like, right, I've got character under control and then like let me try and put this character in a plot now. And it doesn't really work. It kind of all has to be a synergistic thing, like, together. And so she was one for me that kind of linked everything together and how they were essentially the same thing. Like there is no plot without the character driving it and how the choices from a, a, the a plot. Want and need, the yeah. They have to want, but they also have to need something. And do you feel that that need always has to contradict that want? Or do you think they can go, they can, they can work hand in hand. I mean, they, they do have to work hand in hand, but in a way where they're, where the need doesn't like go against the want because sometimes the want can be so self-destructive and that's what makes some of the best characters in cinema. Yeah, I love like uh, really flawed characters because it's just so much more human when you see somebody who's like so self-destructive. And um, the one thing she talks about in her book, which is always fascinating is this idea of having like um, your want is kind of your perceived solution like what you think is going to get you to where you want to go emotionally or physically or towards a goal it, it, it is, is flawed and so with the process of getting closer to that generally everything explodes and then within that process you figure out what you actually need so I've always been fascinated with the idea of the perceived solution um, and how you think you're doing the right thing in your own head and so you're justified with all your actions and you're so authentic to what you believe at that point but you just don't realize that your thinking is so flawed um, and so trying to weave that into characters is really tricky because they have like a blind spot that they're not aware of and you as a writer have to be above all that you know at like a macro level kind of managing all those things and so I think it's the hardest art form, right? And it just blows my mind when you read like a, a really good script or see a movie with great writing. And it's just like, it looks effortless, but it's so by design and full of craftsmanship. It's just amazing. And insanity too, because people just assume it, it just happened like overnight. But I think that some of the best screenwriters there must be, I mean, not to say everybody is like a psychologically tortured person, but you have to go, I think you have to go into that, into that realm just to have a better grasp. I mean, I don't know how Christopher Nolan does and he just looks so calm and relaxed. It's almost like, a, I mean, I don't, I mean, in your process of writing creativity, do you read any philosophy to, to help better understand your character, your character creation process? Um, 
it depends. It depends what who the character is and what kind of stuff they're going through. And I probably read more of that kind of stuff for myself mm. just to figure out how to be like a human person and not like uh, lose it all the time. But like, uh, I don't know, for characters, I don't know, it's very different. Um, one, one of the things that I found the most useful as like an exercise to do in terms of learning screenwriting was um, studying Finding Nemo. From, for me, Finding Nemo taught me more about screenwriting than like most things because the, the process I went through was I just went beat for beat through the entire film and then just put it on paper and then I just went away this happens here this happens here this happens here right a, a new scene so I did it in a different color and then I did this and then what I realized was structurally one of the things that was amazing was that you've got like the Marlin story and then you've got the Nemo story and they take up generally like a page each and then a page each so you're constantly in terms of filmmaking cutting back and forward and that has like a nice dynamic quality to it but as you go closer to the climax those scenes would get shorter so instead of going uh, Nemo Marlin Nemo Marlin it would go Nemo Marlin Nemo Marlin Nemo, Nemo, climax and it would just uh, in terms of length of scenes and um, they would be shorter and shorter and so structurally looking at it you can see how it had a building quality um, as well as everything um, narratively that was going on but like pure structurally from from doing each scene in different colors you could see on paper how it had this uh, building quality and then the Finding Nemo video that I made was the result of kind of all this um, beat for beat uh, questioning and looking into what was actually going on in the scene and what was each scene trying to like achieve and why would Pixar be held as really good um, screenwriters. And the best compliment I ever got from that video was I uh, tweeted it to Andrew Stanton, who's like the director of Finding Nemo. And he said that the video was like 100% spot on in terms of all the work that had been done for this. And he was like, bravo, well done, sir. And it was just like the best thing ever because he um, kind of recognized that um, there was so much behind the scenes in terms of craft and design that went into this finished product that was like the sum of everything that went on you know no that is i mean to me finding nemo is a classic but uh would you say that's your favorite pixar film in comparison to the more popular i mean the the equally popular ones because i feel that incredibles is definitely within that within that same league in addition to toy story toy story 2 I haven't seen Toy Story 4, so that's why. That's the only one of the videos of yours I haven't seen the Toy Story 4 one because I still haven't seen Toy Story 4. And you think by then that the, the, the Toy Story 4 franchise would have experienced some type of burnout. Yeah, well, when you watch it, you'll get, get a sense of it. But it's, um, I don't know, I would even say the Toy Story 4 is maybe even like my favorite. But it's in my head. It's not even like a Toy Story movie. It's it's about it's like a Woody character study movie. Mm. So it's probably to do with like me being the age I am, and um, the fact that Woody's going through a lot of internal stuff in terms of like his journey and where he kind of moves on to. Uh, not to spoil anything, but like it was such a mature look at a character study of like a toy um that it was like a next level for me i thought toy story 4 was like actually incredible and the fact that they took it away from kind of the andy situation and it was this new chapter made it feel like they weren't trying to rehash everything and it actually had new life to the whole thing um 
Oh. And I thought it was very brave of Pixar to 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 go for that move because it it's not a crowd pleaser like uh like like a Toy Story four in that same world would be. It was definitely a, a shot at something new, um, new dramatic and kind of pretty honest. So I uh, commend them for doing something like that. Before I move on to my next question, which regards Toy Story, I got to ask you, I mean, are you an anime fan? Because there was some, an anime I watched where I had a similar approach to which you looked at Toy Story from that angle. And when you said that the Woody character related to a lot of what you did, do you watch any, did you ever watch any anime? Yeah, sometimes just like a lot of Studio Ghibli stuff, really, I haven't probably watched as much as um, I would quite like and probably not as well versed in it as like some people, but always a fan of it and enjoy watching it so uh, uh, open to the recommendations uh, did you ever see cowboy bebop the anime yeah well i'm actually wearing a t-shirt of spike spagel and when you oh, mentioned yeah. self-destructive characters i always found that there's something relatable about that show that you when you mentioned toy story 4 and you said that at this age you could relate to a lot to what woody said and i feel that there's this channel called I think it's called Channel Criswell. That oh yeah, I think that's the channel that made some Cowboy Bebop videos, and one of them says that as you got older, you no, it's actually a Super Eye Patch Wolf that YouTube channel. He talked about how as you get older, you relate to the show more because these characters are super flawed and they've been through so much shit, and that as you get older, you can relate to it to the way where, especially when Spike Spiegel, a man who's just laced with the kind of regret that you start to question your own choices in life and i guess i've related to that especially in the final episodes of the show when he says i'm not going there to die i'm just going to see if i'm really alive if all the choices i've made up to this point were real enough to know who i am and it's just funny that you mentioned that for for toy story to go that existentially deep that is that's only made me more excited to see the film because i can't remember the last time i saw in a pixar movie in theaters because i went my, the last Pixar film I've seen in a long time was Toy Story 3. And the first time I saw it, I watched it very passively. And then after second viewing a few years later, I ended up loving it more. Mm. That's be and ironically, I was in a screenwriter's workshop at the time, which I don't recommend because they're not, if you go to New York Film Academy, it's very no different from a writer's group. And I, I mean, I don't know how you feel about writers groups, but because it really depends on on the culture and the people there. But I just feel that there's something very robotic and routine about presenting just a small segment of your work and then having everybody's opinions on it. And I'm not saying that can't be constructive, but if you're taking so many opinions and not having real confidence in your work, that can be equally destructive to the quality of it, where you just don't know what opinions to factor in as opposed to especially from total strangers that don't know the entire story. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I, oh yeah, when it comes to to Disney and crowd pleasing, how do you what do you how do you feel about that when regards to modern cinema because I feel nowadays it's very rare to see a film that really takes a, a real risk cuz the only studios I, I get excited about when they make a production are like ones like A24 cuz I still haven't seen The Northman. I'm pretty sure that take takes real risks. Yeah, I don't know. I'm always like so pleasantly surprised when you see like a modern film that you're like, oh, that's like an instant classic or that's something I'd never seen before. Um, the, you know, there's just so, but then I always think about like in the 70s, how there were so many killer movies coming out back to back there. 
but those are generally just the ones that we actually remember. I assume there was as much rubbish that came out those years as, uh, you know, in modern years for us, but just those are the ones who stood the test of time. But um, even like uh, Get Out, like when I watched that, um, I was like, this is brilliant. This is so well written and so like thrilling and on your on the edge of your seat stuff. And I thought this is a story that um, I never even expected to, to kind of to like or be drawn to. I'm not a huge horror type fan, so I wasn't sure if tonally I would be kind of into it, but I loved it. And I watched it like, I watched it back to back two days in a row. And I think I've seen it three or four times now. Do you think that there's like a cultural component? Do you think that depending on the culture and the times that it impacts the quality of the films? Because you mentioned the 70s. And one of the things that I constantly hear is, I mean, I always look back to some of the best films being made in the 70s. And the 70s in the United States was just like a brutal time with all the rapid inflation, all the crime that was just spiraling. That I think that that culture just created an environment like, it was like an open door for a lot of great storytelling because I think that the environment of a story also factors in just to the character. And I always, and one movie that makes me think of that in particular is Taxi Driver. I mean, I mean, look at the environment that Travis Bickle is mid 1970s, a lot of inflation, a lot of crime, especially in New York. And that is kind of happening now at the same time. And when you watch a movie from the perception of a character who's just looking at the environment rather than seeing the real cause of these issues, when most people don't even know why, what triggered the triggered these events, unless they do deep research, you get the, you get an authentic sense of a guy of how he would lose his mind. And I wanted to know if, do you think that the, the culture and the particular times have an effect because then you mentioned get out and, that was coming out during a year and during the years where where the the subject of race in America is kind of like taking on a new a new form of commentary. And I'm just curious to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, I definitely think films are like a product of their time and environment and the actors who are involved. It's all like this um, a crazy mix of everything that's going on. But there's still always like a. I don't know, like I watched recently a marriage story with uh, Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver in it. That's good. And then I couldn't, it's so good. I was just, I, I knew I was going to like it because I could just kind of sense from the, the trailer and who was involved and stuff like that. So I knew I was going to enjoy it, but it was just so good. And it was so hard to watch as like a person who has like a family and has a son and stuff like that. And it just reminded me a lot of um, Kramer good versus Kramer. Oh, Blue Valentine. It did. Blue Valentine was in my head while I was watching it. And I thought this is Marriage Story and Blue Valentine. It was like a different way to, to almost tell that same narrative. But, but Kramer versus Kramer was the one that came into my head more in terms of like um, it being about a, a male protagonist and, and going through this divorce and everything that he has to kind of go through to um, kind of figure things out. And I just thought that's the... It's not like the same story being told twice, but it's like an updated retelling of um, that human experience through a different lens almost, which is the same with Blue Valentine. You know, it's a different filmmaker's look on the same type of topic, but I don't know. I feel like it's, it, it doesn't matter what uh, year or what decade it was in, the, the, true, the truly human touching stories will, will eventually uh, last the test of time and kind of be kept for, for all time in terms of like film and things like that like i'm also a huge fan of like uh old chaplin movies like i love like um 
the gold rush and modern times and the kid and city lights and even his you can find tons of them on youtube there's little short films that he made before we got to the feature stage and um it's the tramp character is amazing how like um how iconic but also universal and how the 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 work of silent movies can kind of just connect to everybody and you as an audience 100 years later can still laugh at the jokes or or have um, become emotional at some of the emotional moments and it just shows that the power of cinema even in its infancy and the, the chaplain days has this power that transcends like hundreds of years and will no doubt those films will always last you know oh absolutely and especially but uh with marriage story did you see any di- what is there anything about it that st- stood out to you as opposed to films like kramer versus kramer and blue valentine because i look at kramer versus kramer as a film that is more objective in us having to take the side of Dustin Hoffman's character, even though he starts out very unsympathetic in the beginning. I mean, how many people celebrate their coworkers killing themselves? I mean, that's as a bonus in their job. But when it comes to Blue Valentine, many even Derek Sanfranc makes it clear that he's not trying to like shift the perspective in one particular character. He's letting you to like, because he even like took in opinions people had about uh, with the one side favored Ryan Gosling's character side, well, as opposed to M- M- Michelle Williams's side, but but it's just a film presenting it where it's nobody's fault, and it's too hard to discern what really caused all the all the bullshit that you see in later on in their lives. But with Marriage Story, how did did you? I saw it as more from just like I was just watching it totally neutral, where you can't really side with anyone in particular because none of them are portrayed in a very malicious there's never a moment where either of them are portrayed in a malicious fashion so much as the process of divorce because it seems like the most malicious characters in that film are the lawyers but you still have to watch it from a very neutral point of view yeah that's why i thought the the whole as soon as they got swept into all the lawyer situation i thought that this is it this is the worst thing ever that's going to happen to this family that originally the plan was to do without the lawyer situation um and then the same with Blue Valentine, it, it's really hard to kind of be on somebody's page because I can watch it from Ryan Gosling's perspective and then the other way around and I can kind of agree with what he's saying about kind of fighting for the relationship, but then I can agree with what she's saying and th- th- that's the frustration of the whole thing, you know, is because you just wish they could get on the same page about everything and um, it does have a really good balance in terms of not flipping you one way. The main major difference that I find with both of those films is blue valentine at the end was was like a hard finish as in like that's the final thing is divorce is going to be it there's no hope for them whereas marriage story it felt like it was either hope that there will maybe a relationship could emerge way down the line in the future or that it was maybe at the least going to be like a, a neutral um comfortable feeling where they could live sustainably together with him moving over to LA and then there's a final little gesture of tying the shoelace and all that kind of stuff I feel like there was a slightly more hopeful ending in terms of the family unit and maybe relationships so I, I was more rooting for that one you know rather than Blue Valentine. Blue Valentine's it's so raw that there's there's nothing after that for me. It, to me, it's a film that you have to wait a few years to rewatch it because it is brutal. I mean, hell, even Raging Bull, which I personally think is Martin Scorsese's best film, 
I mean, it's hard with me and Taxi Driver, but it is a film you can't just watch every couple months or even every year because it is that emotionally wrong. It's a film that makes you sympathize with a guy who is just not a nice guy at all. I mean, but he's so flawed, like any one of us, that makes you understand that we're not really in a position to judge. But I, I wanted to also ask when you said that when you uh, mentioned about the times and the subject matter of a film do you feel that there's a danger in that where it becomes the film becomes more ideological the rather than narrative based because there are a lot of films that are that use an ideology for the narrative but then the ideology overtakes the narrative so much that it becomes straight out propaganda yeah i feel like films like that um are too message heavy you know i feel like they'll eventually just get lost in 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 time and movies that are really about the heart and really about um emotion human emotion are the ones that will last and so i generally get turned off by films like that because they either are too um heavy-handed with like trying to give a specific message and cinematic manipulation to feel a specific way um and and then i generally don't think that those movies will last and then they, they never um endure the way that other films do do you have any particular examples of movies you felt were were not doing that for a certain moment during the film and then all of a sudden they just throw that mis- message and it sort of takes everything out of balance because i'm always curious because i feel that's becoming more common especially within the corporatized environment where I mean, in addition, we're, we're just being over flooded with superhero or comic book films or just retellings of old things that shouldn't really be retold because I was surprised last year when I heard that they were going to remake West Side Story. And I haven't seen that film in almost 20 years, but even then I liked it. And I just thought, how do you re- you can't remake that with just a carbon copy? Mm. Um, I don't know. I feel like um, I'm more interested in like films that... Um that you view differently at a different age or a different point in your life rather than kind of messages like that like for example Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain is a movie that I watched when I was like way younger and was kind of fascinated and blown away with all of like the filmmaking craftsmanship and the ideas of the film but then as you watch it as you get older the the idea of the fact that it's really about mortality and dying um it speaks to you like on a different level and it makes you think about different things and um even in terms of like um another Scorsese film like the king king of comedy that's a film that like I made a video about because I loved the movie and thought it was just like a fascinating character study but after the release of the Joker movie um people all of a sudden were like googling it and it became like way more successful on the channel just because of the connection kind of between the two and there was this uh um, resurrection of the interest in that film and it actually is way more uh, it was way more ahead of its time and applicable to fame nowadays almost than it was back then and and the dangers of that and the the chaos that goes along with that and yeah so i'm really interested in like how films travel across time and how viewing films can be different depending on how old you are and uh, where you are like in, in, in your life yeah i i noticed that because when joker came out i mean the fact that they compared it to taxi driver and last king of comedy when i saw last king of comedy i saw it more as a horror film but a, a, a horror film that was so ahead of its time because in terms of celebrity culture where nowadays all a celebrity has to 
well, I mean, a celebrity rather than a film, than just an actor or actress, because I think that you just have to be a celebrity to and just make a statement to garner some type of nor- notoriety and people will ignore it. But the scary thing about it is that is the crowd mentality aspect of it rather than the individual. But it's, all, it's also ironic that around the time when the Joker came out and when COVID began, it actually resurfaced the popularity of Contagion. And Contagion was a film that I felt was always underrated in terms of what Steven Soderbergh was trying to show. And now I've heard rumors that he's going to make a sequel, which I don't, I don't really understand why, because he's regarded as like the philosophical sequel, even though I felt that there was plenty of philosophical elements in the first one. Because the first one doesn't like like promote this propaganda that lockdowns are complete one hundred percent effective, or that all these institutions are all either all good or all bad. That they're just made up of the same thing with people. I mean, regardless of where you are politically, at the end of the day, whether you're pr- more you lean more towards government or not, I feel that at the end of the day, it's just people making decisions. And uh, oh god, I guess I lost the framework of my question, but. Yeah, when it comes to the last game of comedy, that was way ahead of its time and probably to a terrifying extent. Well, there's another Scorsese movie that um, had the same change of relationship with was uh, The Color of Money with like Tom Cruise and Paul, Paul Newman. Really? Yeah, I've never seen that because I watched that movie when I was like, I must have been like eight or something like that, like really young. And when I was eight, the biggest star in the world was like Tom Cruise. So for me watching it and Tom Cruise kind of getting recruited as the main character, I thought he was the main character of the film and he was the whole focus of the movie. And when later on in the film, it shifts to becoming way more about Paul Newman as the protagonist and his kind of rebirth and and kind of stepping back up to his former years. I was like, what's what's going on with this movie? Where Where is this going? Where's Tom Cruise? He's the hero in like every movie. And it was only later that I realized it was this kind of spiritual sequel to like um, The Hustler and how Paul Newman was way bigger a star than Tom Cruise in those days and how it was really about Paul Newman from the get-go. And so watching that in in later years, um, saw the film completely differently and realized that Tom Cruise played a very different type of role. And um, I love that movie. It's just such a good movie. But in my head, I've seen it twice or a bunch of different times but saw it in my head in two different, completely different ways. Did you, did, is it because of the Paul Newman's character also that he's also dealing with a lot of issues that are relatable, especially with the fact that given his age, we're all going to reach that point where we thought we're not as good as we used to be, but we got to still feel, we still feel like this urge to prove that we're still, we still have traces of that old person we once were. Cause if you've seen, I mean, obviously I'm pretty sure you've seen the hustler in that movie. He's crazy. He's impulsive. He's daring, but he is very, he's very charismatic and just, he just has this edge to him that you find so immersively attractive. And that's why I guess, I guess that's why I love the hustler more because there's just something so electrifying about his performance in that movie. And and I'm not even a pool player. I've never watched anyone play pool, but that movie just gets you into the, just into the process of the game so much that you just can't help but admire so many qualities of it. The Color of Money is just much, I think it goes more into that existential realm Scorsese's known for. Yeah, and it's definitely more like a, 
like they always talk about um, coming of age movies. But the thing that I realized the wrestler with Mickey Rourke was, was kind of like a realization of age movie, where it's like you, you've reached a certain point in your life and, and, and that's it. You, you might be kind of over the hill and you have this last kind of glory years left. And um, like, how, what do you do at that point in your life? You know, people don't make movies about that as much because it's not exciting and um, not commercial. Yeah, not commercial. It's not sexy. It's like way more um, honest and and something that people struggle with, like how, how to deal with that kind of thing. And that's what The Color of Money was for me is like, what do you do at that stage in your life? And then Tom Cruise comes along and he's reinvigorated with this passion he had when he was younger and it re-electrifies something that was in him. And then he kind of rediscovered who he was. And um, I find all that kind of uh, redemption type story like fascinating. But the, the point of bringing that up was like, I thought it was about Tom Cruise. I thought he was the main star at the first, but it's totally not. Yeah, there's a there's something very telling, but ironic about what you said about the commercial aspect because Tarantino a few years ago, I think he said it actually in late 2019 about even the best, most modern films that are commercial, but are actual films or just either retellings or they just draw so many elements from old films that they feel like retellings, whether it's Joker taking influence from Last King of Comedy and Taxi Driver so much that they're almost identical, especially even the Joker actually takes place near the same years the Taxi Driver took place in, where there was a lot of economic uncertainty and chaos in the US. And even the Gotham City of that, of that environment looks like 1970s New York. And then there's the, the recent The Batman film, which is basically a love letter to David Fincher's Seven and Zodiac in so many ways. Hell, I do laugh every time after that scene where he punches Gordon, because right after that, he just goes into the next room and he's just like running around the police station from Seven. Yeah, I, and I, I, I love the new Batman movie but oh, for all those reasons, because it was like yeah. one of those movies, you know entertaining the Batman fan in it, how would you rank it among the Christopher Nolan or even the Tim Burton ones? I don't know. It's so like the Tim Burton films for me maybe aren't as good objectively, but like are so nostalgic and have like a weird place like in my heart because it was the first kind of movies that I watched that were like that, that it would unfairly rank higher than it probably deserves. Um, um, I've always been somebody who liked the Batman Begins more than the Dark Knight, as much as like the Dark Knight's kind of hailed as like the best movie ever. But um, for me, it's great. But I prefer the story being about Batman and his kind of rise, which is probably why I like the most new Batman movie, because there was it's probably the movie that Batman was on screen the most. He's not like if you go back and watch like uh, Batman Returns, or any other Batman movie, if you did a clock and watched the screen time of the time that he was actually on screen, it would be tiny compared to like the newest Batman movie. It was about him and about uh, his kind of journey and uh, and all along with kind of the dark grittiness of it and uh, the long investigation slow burn that it was, it just had a lot of elements that were, that I enjoyed, you know? It's very, yeah, I mean, I, I look at the new Batman film as a film that will be hailed as a classic. And I was the only disappointment I have is not with the film itself, but so much as the marketing, because they are even ahead of its release. They, they announced that they would make a trilogy and that, that kind of, I mean, I'm the story was just that good though, that it made me forget that whether he may or may not die in the film. Cause I actually thought that when he did that little trick where he cut the, 
the elect the cord at the end yeah. of the film that he would die and i missed that from the way superhero movies used to be done where you didn't have to announce like the next two or three sequels to come i mean as much as i enjoyed black panther if they hadn't have shown that trailer for infinity war back in even late 2017 or early 2018 prior to its february release I don't know how I would have felt about it because it already gave you the sense that he won't die in Black Panther and Black Panther is a really good film. And I, it, I mean, in addition to just embody using so many elements of African culture, especially when I think I look at the film as it drew a lot of influence from the Lion King in many ways. I also like the idea that Killmonger was actually, they used a lot of anime villains for his particular, you know, his design. I mean, did you watch Dragon Ball Z as a child? Uh, little snippets of it yeah just little bits oh well uh, did you know that uh, killmonger's armor his costume was basically based off of that character vegeta so much that it was just yeah it was just enlightening to know that but uh yeah when it comes to the batman franchise i guess i haven't seen the chris nolan films in such a long time and the tim burton ones i do always felt that batman was more of a secondary character in those films but that isn't what ironically stopped me from loving them as much as that little boy in me should have. I mean, they did freak me out, but the reason was that later on, there was just so much toxicity around Michael Keaton fans because he has, unfortunately, he had a lot of toxic fans that if you liked any other interpretation of Batman, even the animated series, you were automatically just like attacked on message boards or YouTube commentaries that it just made it difficult for me to love them as I do as much as I do now. But I, it's hard when it comes to the Christopher Nolan, and I still have yet to see what Matt Reeves will do with that franchise. But uh, going back to what we were originally talking about, it feels like every modern film, even a moderately successful film that has some originality to it, just feels like a retelling. And even Tarantino mentioned Ad Astra, because Ad Astra is just apocalypse now in space. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's I watched Ad Astra and loved it and then watched a bunch of interviews with the director and uh, he talks openly about that reference and how that was his kind of apocalypse now. And um, yeah, it, it's crazy. That's why I find it really challenging um, when you're deciding what to do next for a different video essay, like what topic am I going to cover? What film am I going to cover? I rarely, rarely choose like the most modern films like there's a lot of video essays that try and bank on the release of a film um as something that's going to be more kind of commercial um for me because the purpose was never to be like a, a youtuber and kind of get views the purpose was always kind of learning and study and then i always kind of tried to go back into movies that i thought um that had something real of value for me to study kind of independently and then if that was interesting enough then that would kind of become a video um, and that's why i did like the michael clayton videos because that was like another screenplay that i dug into and tried wow. to learn as much as possible about because of how strong it was and then how um tony gilroy is really like a descendant of uh, william goldman and how much william goldman was in charge of like hollywood for this period of time and then I made a video about William Goldman because that was another kind of string of screenwriting study. Um, and, and so, yeah, always choosing videos was more about like, what can I get from studying this movie or what can I get from digging into this topic? And um, it kind of takes you away from the, the modern release of films because you're looking at things that um, have already survived many years, you know? 
Are there any particular movies that you'd like to do a video essay on, but you still have like, I mean, that you've just thought about doing in the future? I'm always curious because I did love your Brad Bird one. And I just don't, I don't hear many people talking about the Iron Giant unless they're big, big film fans. Cause I actually, a few months ago, or maybe it was actually a year, I listened to the, the Michael Tucker's podcast Beyond the Screenplay on and how they did on Iron Giant. And that to me, I feel is such, I still feel is so underappreciated. And ironically, that film was also very ahead of its time in, in terms of the subject matter and the paranoia around it. And I, I feel that film is more of a class, is a classic that should, that deserves more respect. Yeah, I love the Iron Giant. Um, I was happy when I showed it to my son. He's only three. And then he wanted to watch it like immediately after he just finished watching it. So we watched it like back to back two times in a row. And um, I thought, there we go, getting the good film. That kid's got a lot of great kids movies ahead of his, ahead of him. Yeah. Um, But the Iron Giant is great. And, And Brad Bird is one of these guys who's like, if you look at his body of work, it's just like amazing everything that he's been able to like do and accomplish at like such a high level. And um, I was amazed that nobody else had really dug that much into his kind of process and, um, or even just talked about him that much as like a fascinating kind of figure. Um, So those are the kind of people and those are the kind of films that I try and look at and think this film by itself is, is of like a high quality amazing nature that is like a classic and then and then just asking like questions like why is that why does it connect emotionally what is it visually that does that kind of things and what can I learn about from how the scenes are crafted and um there's so much visual um comedy and visual language that goes on in that movie especially with it being animation that um it's almost like a live action movie that's animation um it's just incredible so I don't know I try and find topics like that that are interesting to me and then I just kind of share it and then if people kind of like it then then great I think that's why I've gravitated towards like youtubers like yourself and uh, do you follow the work of Thomas van der Linden the one who does like stories of old yeah yeah his stuff's great no it's because I think it's very intellectually stimulating and I don't want this to be like a like as a way of discrediting more popular YouTubers like Chris Stuckman or John Flickinger. But as much as I like their work, I feel that some YouTubers aren't aren't very well appreciated because they delve into much more intellectually introspective approaches. I just feel when it comes, and with like stories of old, in addition to the new podcast he launched with Thomas Flight, I feel that because his videos are taking on even longer, much longer formats, because his videos used to be just like between 10 and 15 minutes but now they're going like to an hour i mean he literally did one an hour for a video game i haven't played the video game death stranding or something it it features the character from walking the walking dead and uh i i just i find that those guys are just still very underappreciated but they're the things i've always gravitated towards and i like that they person that you guys pick films that are personally attractive to you i mean you mentioned rob ager and i haven't seen a lot of his videos except the kubrick ones even though i do love the the deep analysis he does especially about the symbolism in films like eyes wide shut and clockwork orange especially with how he uses the philosophy of abraham no the psychological diagrams of abraham maslow yeah, Rob's, his um, YouTube experience is weird because he, his channel was huge. He had like 
hundreds of thousands of subscribers and had a big online wow. community and reach. And then in the early, like 10 years ago, but when YouTube was like really starting to become super popular and channels were becoming emerging, um, his channel got um, red flagged or deleted what? by YouTube. And why? He, it was something to do with copyright and uh. too many copyright videos and strikes. And I like, I experienced a bunch of that stuff and had to edit specific videos to avoid copyright and ha had a ban and stuff like that. And then could only make videos up to 10 minutes. And so I experienced a little bit of that, but he lost his whole channel. And so one of the things that he did was he now sells all of his work kind of on DVDs. So he's got like a huge back catalog of like incredible work, but it's just not all publicly uh, viewable. Um, but like on his website, he's got like a list of films that he has videos for that are all like crazy awesome to like dig into. Um, but he doesn't have like as big a YouTube channel and presence as he used to, but, but he was like the original, like there was nobody making video essays when he was making video essays. And even, even when I started it, kind of copying on, on the back of him, nobody was really doing it. Um, so it's amazing to me how much that format has like picked up as like um, interesting to film people and really useful and all these different kind of um, formats like uh, Lessons from a Screenplay and Captain Christian and The Nerd Writer and like Every Frame of Pain and it was like super, super successful in terms of film video essays and really put video essays on the map on a big scale. Um, it's weird watching how that uh, medium has kind of flourished, you know? I, I, I know. And that, that's why I, I don't know if I shared my Substack with you, but that be, itself has become like this decentralized platform where you can just publish anything, whether it's a podcast, a video series, or even your own, your own personal film blog. I mean, I make it accessible for everybody just to listen, read my film reviews. But the best part about it is that you don't have to experience all that copyright nonsense. In fact, so many so many journalists have like like left their mainstream corporate jobs just to just to write their material on Substack and probably earn a better living. And I'm amazed. I was just surprised to hear that Rob Ager got all that that copyright nonsense thrown at him because I figured that there wasn't anything controversial. And now with YouTube, I'm skeptical about using YouTube to promote for the podcast because I just put this on Anchor and it just distributed it against on no on multiple podcasting platforms because I figure that's safer. And now with all the censorship that's going on on YouTube, just for something that might be misinterpreted, I always worry that even if because I, I don't know if you how often you follow Joe Rogan, but I see on the tag of all his episodes, there's like a COVID warning just because he mentions the word COVID. And I just thought if they're getting that extreme, that just makes me wonder would I lose everything if I put it on YouTube or, but, I would, but yeah, Rob, I, I, I feel he's to some extent, he's still underappreciated. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, as part of like, um, like if you look at my first video essays compared to like videos I've made now, they're both, interested in film and about the same kind of topic but the production value of things has completely changed like you can't almost even listen to some of the original videos because the audio is so bad and i just the same as that you were talking about experiment and i had no idea what i was doing i was just let's talk about this movie and then here's how you edit it 
and I didn't know how to like present it or how to like record properly and or how to mix levels of sound and stuff like that so it was super raw and rough and just an experiment um, and so I feel like I've learned how to kind of produce things along the way but also in terms of like um, the channel has been like an experiment all the time so if you work for like a company like you were saying about those guys leaving to do their own thing um, I don't think I could do that and be kind of no. pitching, like a little box and be like right you have to make a video about this today and this is the new topic because i would be so disinterested if people told me what to do and that's why um like oh, it's I mean, gotten even worse it's gotten even yeah, worse they're basically uh i mentioned that i work as a freelance writer but another job i have i won't go into major like super detail but it has me reviewing these courses of how they're educating people how to behave in the workplace in in a cultural way and i just feel look I mean, I'm for all inclusion and diversity, but if you just put it in a way where you force people to behave in a certain way rather than letting them engage as individuals and make their own choices, that becomes very self-destructive where you're conditioning people, conditioning people how to interact with each other socially rather than just letting them be in a more humane way. And it's just, it's rather, I don't want to sound paranoid, but I find it terrifying that they're just, constructing the way human beings socialize in an environment that i mean if you watch any corporate any film with a corporate environment in it back in like films in the 80s or the 70s people felt more natural back then yeah it's very artificial and uh, like i can see all the legal side of things and like the inclusion i can see the whole purpose of it but i know what you mean it comes across as super false and super artificial and things like that but that's why me with the channel is it was always like uh, an extension of like expression so it was always um there's since you get to like a certain amount of subscribers you get contacted by all these people that want you to become part of their network and things or or mm -hmm. have sponsors and i never opted to go with any of that because i never wanted to have to please anybody to do things or have to like um tick specific boxes when you were making certain things and so i always just wanted like if I wanted to make a film analysis, then I would do that. But then if I wanted to make a love letter about a movie that I love, but actually has no depth in it, but it's just like a, like an exploration on a topic or make like a little mini documentary about how I've learned things, then I just kind of do whatever you, you want to do. Like I'm like the only person who runs the channel. There's no team or anything. So it's like, yeah. um, you know, free to do stuff, you know? I don't think, I mean, as much as I would definitely like to be financially successful with this experiment, I certainly would never see myself as the boss of a team because I'm just that kind of guy that would probably, if I could have my own business, it would just be me rather than a team. And not to say that I wouldn't have people who are competent, but I guess I'm just that I, I am, my obsessive compulsiveness makes me want to just take charge in a way where being a babysitter would be rather difficult. But yeah, I'm going back to, when it comes to sponsorships, it would really, for me, it would really depend on the, of what I was promoting. Cause it, it just depends. I've had people reach out to me, even there I'm paranoid because you never know what, which are phishing scams or not. And I just use a lot of security apps just to be sure. I mean, I'm not a hacker, but I just have the paranoia of one sometimes, but uh, yeah, when it comes to uh, the way culture has been constructed, it's become very artificial and I don't blame you. I think that some of the be best filmmakers in many ways, even though when they work for big corporate jobs, they're still independent in many ways. I mean, look at Christopher Nolan, the, the fact that he walked away from Warner Brothers like that and then signed up with Paramount, they gave him everything he wanted. 
because they know what his value is worth and he can just step out every time. I definitely would like to see another independent film from him, even though that's unlikely. Yeah. The other thing, just before we move on from that topic that I was just thinking about was um, the other side effect of making sure you do kind of things your own way when it's kind of your channel kind of thing is um, I generally like make a video and then kind of move on. So I rarely like go back and watch any of them. But like kind of thinking about doing this today with you, I kind of watched a couple just to see what, um, what kind of topics we would talk about and things and just for reference. And I, I always, I'm kind of proud of the channel because it is like an expression of who I was at those time, at that time and how I was interested in those videos. And I could see within the video, even if it's not as polished as you would like it to be, I can see what I was figuring out at that time. And I could see what I was learning and where I was like emotionally and on this journey. And it takes me back to like that period in my life. And so it's like a weird body of work of kind of like little mini creative endeavors that are this, um, many step on like a macro journey of trying to figure something out. And so, I don't know, it's like watching like old VHS videos. It has that kind of like nostalgia type quality for me, especially because like I've been doing it for a long time. So it's like 10 years. So it's, it's had enough life in it that I was at different points when I made different videos, you know, like I lived in different houses or I was thinking about story or I was thinking about this kind of stuff. And I don't know. So it has a weird looking back, um, nostalgia type feel for me do you ever feel like going back to the podcasting format yeah i always would have liked to have done that because the thing that slowed me down about video essays is they took so long to produce in terms of like research and study and investigation and then writing and then producing and then and then get it done and finished but like podcasts you just you sit down and you talk and like like a two-hour podcast there's obviously production on either side of those things but like you could do it in a day almost you know but like a video essay could take two months if you if you let it consume your life um but like i went through a period of making a video essay every monday for 22 weeks and just went Jeez. crazy at it and um that i learned a lot through that period but then when my son was born it took me like a year and a half to make the william goldman video and um like as another thing about working by yourself is like there's no deadline you just do whatever you can manage that within your life and stuff like that so people are always like oh when's more videos coming and, and i would love to just make more but like uh, like i was saying about it being an extension of the journey of where you are you're always juggling different stuff at different times in your life you know oh yeah for me i mean i I follow a similar process because I've never done a video essay. I mean, and I'm not sure if I ever will because that's just a, but that's a curiosity I've always wanted to entertain because I mean, podcasting has sharpened my editing skills to a certain extent, but the only things I edit is just that the video is polished. I mean that the recording, sorry, is polished enough that any sounds that just feel out of that feel out of frame or just don't fit with the video that can just be taken out i mean this recording will just be as natural as it is the only thing i'll probably edit out is like the moment when either we began or edit or ended the video and i clicked a certain button and that was in the background but aside from that i i actually just i think a, a review i did yesterday is going to be published today because i scheduled it for no time to die and i just simply wing it but even there i don't speak in a scripted format i just let it go wherever it can while talking because when i do a review for a film i can be i can be talking about the film but then i'll just end up talking about multiple things in relation to it 
and with no time to die, all I did was just talk. I talked about that Casino Royale, my thoughts on Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, the whole the Bond franchise, the perceptions of James Bond as a character, and how this particular interpretation has deconstructed some elements of him that were never really looked at in prior prior interpretations of the character. And uh, I'm just I'm just looking to see where that goes because I've only published, in addition to the interviews I've done so far for this channel, I've just done two film reviews, one on David Cronenberg's Shivers and then on No Time to Die, which is obviously a more recent film and that's still going to be fresh in people's minds. And uh, I also, I guess I wanted to ask, because you mentioned also how in Scotland there's not much of a big filmmaking scene. Do you think that's changing or do you think that your work in filmmaking might help change that as people become more aware of your channel? I don't know. It's always weird um, when somebody contacts me in comments or something, something like that, and they say, oh, I'm also from Scotland. And I'm like, oh, here's a little connection with somebody that's on this side of the, the world, you know? Generally, most people that reach out are from, like, all over the world, and lots of people have reached out from kind of L.A. when, like, film is, like, their thing. And... Um, I don't know there is there is a lot of kind of filmmaker people in Scotland, um, but it just doesn't have like the like I can imagine living in LA. Every second person would have like a script that they're working on, and like any coffee shop that you would go to, there would just be people storyboarding and talking about you know whatever they're working on. Whereas like people are just kind of getting on with their jobs here. You know, nobody. I don't really know any like successful writers or successful painters or people who have made films and then all of a sudden that's their full-time job and they're an artist now you know it's almost like a, a dream that that would happen so um I don't know it's always kind of like a um like a wish that you could live out there because that's kind of what the life would be but no, then I always that one's lovely yeah, it sounds like great, but I always kind of sometimes think of it as like a secret power as I'm kind of like over here where nobody's doing that kind of stuff. And I can just, um, without being influenced or interrupted by anybody else, else just kind of get on with my own figuring things out, you know? Well, yeah. I live in, in Pompano Beach, but in a place called Palmer in Florida. And it's, I wouldn't say it's like in the countryside, but it's just, it's isolated in many ways that I'm able to work peacefully. So I guess I can relate to that feeling. And I like Palmer in addition to being just a decent place to live, but it's just so I say, cause I could never live in somewhere more modernized like Miami or Fort, downtown Fort Lauderdale. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed by how many people have flocked to Miami over the past two years, but Miami's just become this massive tech hub. And I still, and I find that impressive, but also I just, of all the times I've been to those kind of metropolitan areas, I just don't see why anybody would want to live there. I just can't. It just feels too overwhelming in many ways. Yeah, I don't know. I would like to visit those places more or, or work in places like that, but I don't know if I can live and have a family and stuff there, you know. No. Uh, I don't know. I think it would be tricky. If you've, if you've been, to, I mean, I haven't been to Miami in a long time, but I can't imagine the traffic getting any better now. And it, with a lot of people from Los Angeles and New York flocking there, it's mo it's probably even worse now. Yeah. The um, the other thing I was thinking about, I don't know, I just jumped into my head, but was um, screenplays of um, William Goldman. I don't know if you if you've seen many William Goldman movies or, or read any of, of his uh, books. 
but when I was thinking about like places to live and stuff like that, he was kind of famous for living in New York and his life as a writer was, um, you know, writing during the day and he would go to like Knicks games in the evenings and he would like talk and mingle with all these kind of, uh, all these different artists. And um, that's always like a weird fantasy for me is like to live that like artist life. But then you're always just kind of like juggling it with reality and whatever, um, whatever you have going on in your life. So I don't know, it's, it's weird to feel like you're missing out on something, but then also make the most of, of where you're at. Oh, well, I have seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but what are the scripts did Goldman, Goldman write? No, Golden. Yeah, so you've got um, Butch Cassidy's probably like the number one. Then you've got All the President's Men. That's you've got uh, um, Marathon Man. You've got... Uh, the absolute power with clint eastwood also directed by clint eastwood wow. um you've got um what's the film oh the name will come to me in a second but it's got val kilmore and kirk douglas and they're it, it's like jaws in the jungle with two lions what's it called it's something darkness ghosts in the darkness the two lions are called ghosts and the darkness and they're trying to build this bridge in africa somewhere and the workers keep getting eaten by these man-eating lions and um it's like jaws in the jungle with with uh, lions it's awesome and um, no it's it's better as a screenplay than it is as a film i read the screenplay first and then watched the movie the, the movie has a few letdowns in places but it's still pretty awesome and um, but the screenplays could have been better um the, sorry the screenplay is great and the movie could have been a bit better well, it looks like I have seen a lot of William Golding's work because when you and then you mentioned all the president's men because I'm a big fan of Alan J. Pakula and I still haven't seen Clute. And you actually mentioned I think you mentioned that film in your interview yeah. with Nelson was a Nelson Tracy or Adam Skelter. But I wanted to ask, since you mentioned all the president's men and Clute, since they were both directed by the same guy, did you ever see the parallax view? And uh, no, but I, I know of it and would like to see it. Oh, God. I mean, I haven't seen Clute, so I don't know how horrifying that is, because that's actually part of like a political trilogy that Pakula was making that explored just like this paranoia of the 70s, especially like 10 years following Kennedy's assassination and the mistrust of governments. If you see Parallax View, it is terrifying in such a good way and warren Beatty just know i mean he just has he's like the perfect actor for that role in a conspiracy thriller where you don't know who exactly these people are and there's just going to be one scene in the film when you see it that just blows your mind awake because even that it's like a montage scene that is being analyzed to death nowadays and uh but yeah check it out because it's a shame it, it's not on prime anymore because i saw it i just thought Oh, it's just another political thriller, but it's one where you don't really know who, who exactly is the evil entity that he's following and what you well, I won't spoil it, but you're in for something special with Parallax View that it's become a film I would probably put in my favorites and even only after seeing one one time. Yeah, I'm excited to watch it because I know it's in that same ballpark as kind of michael clayton and all that kind of uh behind the scenes political type stuff and so that even that alone makes me like oh this is, this is gonna be good and then even along with um well Cl- clutes are really good watch as well and michael, that's also connected to michael clayton for me because michael clayton or tony gilroy talked about that in one of those dp30 videos when he was talking about the process of 
um, coming up with rules and limitations for the cinema cinematography and how they wanted it to be bare, bare as a film and not have tons of extras. And one of the visual references for that film was Clue, and that made me go and watch Clue. And it, it has a very similar feel, even though story-wise it's completely different, but you can sense that it, it has that same kind of visual language to it. Is it much more ambiguous in terms of narrative? Because of Michael Clayton, I think the film makes it clear that he's just very dissatisfied in the people he defending, he's defending as part of his job. The people he picks up after are just evil, crooked, or just morally bankrupt. With Clute, is it much more ambiguous given that the subject matter is different? Not really. It's more like um, more of a, a genre thriller piece um a lot of, like you're talking about uh, paranoia type feel a lot of kind of suspense sequences um a lot of great acting sequences um but definitely like a film like of that time in, in terms of like the look and the feel and the acting style and all that chinatown in many ways yeah it has that kind of vibe to it yeah yeah because if you've seen chinatown you you know who the, who the most evil character in the film is, but you don't know how deep his evil is rooted in the power he has. Because I still struggle with this day, to this day at the ending of Chinatown to decide whether the, that police detective that Jack Nicholson used to work with, Lou Escobar, whether he was really crooked or he just knows who are the crooked entities. And he's just trying to get him. He's, when he says, I'm doing you a favor, he just knows how deep rooted the corruption is that, you just don't know where it's at at the center and that you wouldn't probably know even if you try, even if, if they wanted to let you know. Yeah. That's why I like the final line is like, um, like it, it's Chinatown and stuff like that because they it's so deeply rooted in that place that even an individual's attempt to try and rise above it is almost uh, worthless, you know, cause they're going to get dragged down in this place. Um, also another great screenplay for study in Chinatown, uh, like one of the one of the greats that people talk about and refer to. And even if you take the first 10 pages of that movie and just go through it line for line and just see how much is like achieved and conveyed and explained in every single line, it packs this whole picture and um, exposition of what's going on. And there's just so much information that's conveyed within very deliberate storytelling it's like a great study oh yeah and i think watching a film like that and there's actually i guess i i recently saw the oliver stone's jfk and there's a line joe pesci's character says when they ask him who killed the president his he said even the shooters don't even know who shot him don't even know who killed him because it was so int these plots were so int intricately constructed that even if you were to find like some element of the source, you would just get more confused. And I feel that's a good way of looking at a film like Chinatown because you wouldn't, I mean, the, even during JJ, when JJ Giddis meets Noah Cross and you get the idea that he's the villain, you still get the idea that just like Jake is, that he's, he's just part of this mystery that's only getting more complex even as he unravels bits of it because it's so deeply rooted. And it's actually based off true events. I never knew that. I never knew much about the behind the scenes of it. Um, I think I've only seen it a few times as well, but I love movies like that that are like ambiguous in certain ways. Like like two movies that nobody really talks about that I love is um, John Q with Denzel Washington and um, Mad City with John Travolta and Dustin Hoffman. 
I don't know if you've seen I know that John, I know what John Q's about, and I can under I can see why because that can be personal for anybody. Yeah, the thing the thing I like about both of those stories is it's like a person. It's like they're both hostage movies. So like it's a person that's um, taking other people hostage, which is like a morally wrong thing to do. But then you root for that character because you understand where their head is and where their heart is because they're doing it for something that's that's bigger than them. So like Denzel Washington takes people hostage in a hospital because they need the hospital to perform heart surgery on his son because his um, his work insurance won't pay for it and, and his son's dying. So he like takes action into his own hands and that's what this movie's about. And um, it's the same with um, Mad City, John Travolta, who's like a security guard, gets fired from a museum. He, he wants his job back, but then he ends up kind of through a weird circumstance of kind of a mistake. He ends up taking um, everybody who's in the museum hostage and there's a bunch of kids and stuff there. Um, but it was all a lot of manipulation from the kind of media who's uh, Dustin Hoffman's character. And Dustin Hoffman tries to tell the story and be the reporter that gets in there to tell his story, but it keeps getting twisted up and re-manipulated. And, and John Travolta, even though he's doing something that's um, morally wrong, and he is, he, he's doing it for um, something that he sees as good. And you actually empathize with the person that's doing something wrong. And for me, that was um those things were very clever because you had something that you knew was wrong but something that you knew your heart was right and something that you would maybe have to do if you were in that situation and so the, there was just like a, a lot of emotional dramatic uh conflict and power in both of those stories you know i it's funny that you mentioned that because it, it i mean it contrasts with what uh like say a film like the matrix which is a film everybody's seen it's very popular but in addition to being ahead of its time, I feel that at the current moment we're living in, there's something very relevant about the film because it's not just the idea of the simulation theory because that just borders more on the sci-fi aspect where what if your perception of reality was that you're actually stuck in a tube and these images are being fed in your head. But when you think about the word simulation itself, a simulation is just a narrative and it's a constructed narrative in many ways. And in the current era we're living in with subjects like COVID, inflation, and all these other topics, you feel that the, just like in Mad City, the media can manipulate these, these particular narratives in a certain way where they distract it. I mean, here in the US, the fact that the Johnny Depp trial is somehow relevant, if, it feels more like a distraction or hence part of that simulation. And it's like a perfect example of how simulation can work to distract you from the things that really matter. And I guess that's why I feel that we're, we're that the matrix as a film is more relevant now than it was back then. As just this edgy idea. I mean, I haven't seen any of the sequels to the matrix and I honestly was more in line with the idea that the John wick movies were more of matrix spinoffs given that not just because they were made by some of the people involved by the matrix, but there are just a lot of hints in those movies that made me think, what if it's just a new simulation? I mean, what do you think about that idea? Yeah, that's probably more interesting idea than, I don't know, some of the route that they went with some of the sequels. I, I love parts of the sequels and then kind of recognize that either through time pressure or just not being able to figure out like a, a, a tight enough story, but that it felt like Matrix 2 and 3 were just stretched out versions that were a lot more surface level. Whereas like 
every shot and every scene within the first one is so dense in terms of like what it's communicating and information that it gets across to an audience. It's like on another level in terms of filmmaking the first one. Um, but yeah, I think that's a funny idea about, yeah, jo uh, Keanu Reeves being in another simulation, which would be John Wick, you know? Um, yeah, I could, I could see that happening. And Keanu Reeves yeah. is like the perfect person to play both of those things, you know? I certainly get that sensation. And I, I also often feel like it has a similar approach to Inception because uh, I read this book on the philosophy of Inception, how the movie is potentially a dream entirely given the physicality, not just the physicality or the time that they, they manipulate physics in the film, but even the fact that Leo DiCaprio's character can travel from one location to another and you're just there like in a dream. The John Wick movies take a similar approach because I've been to Princeton, New Jersey, or I don't know, I think he lives in Princeton in the movies, John Wick, the character. Yet in the second one, he literally walks from there all the way to Manhattan. And I'm not saying it's impossible, but that's hours worth of walking rather than as opposed to a one hour train ride. And I just feel that the John Wick movies, that's why they, they're most, I think that they were probably Matrix spinoffs, but they don't make it obvious. And the third one, made those hints even more clear and not just with the whole gun i'm, I'm gonna need some guns lots of guns reference which was a nice touch because i've i like keanu reeves as an actor and i just i love his dedication to fight choreography and i don't know i just look at the john wick movies as i still look at them as cinema i think that i've i've been thinking of writing an essay on them because i think the character is much more complex than just some killing machine yeah, the other movie that you made me think of as you were talking there was, did you see um, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once? Kind of I, new I, movie. No, but someone I interviewed mentioned that movie to me. How yeah, I, I went to the cinema to see it last week or maybe the week before. And um, it was it was amazing. It was the same the same guys who directed uh, Swiss Army Man. Swiss Army Man? Oh, I have Army. to see that. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. And... Um, it has that same crazy vibe to it, but it was almost a bit like Inception, Matrix, M Multiverse, um, Eternal Sunshine. It was like all, all of those things all happening like at once. Um, and it was really clever, but like another film that was like, for somebody who has like a secondary appreciation for craftsmanship of film, you're just watching this thing like, how are they how are they doing this like earlier we talked about new movies that are unique and original that aren't spin-offs or aren't remakes this is like something that's was just like you could see how it piggybacked on some of the ideas of like the matrix and all those kind of things but it, it was like this new story and a new way of telling it and like if you get a chance to watch it it will blow your mind it's so good what so where can good. i find it because because it, is it on netflix is it on Netflix? Because I feel like um, I've seen it advertised there for some reason. It, maybe it was. It, we watched it at the cinema. It was still at the cinema. I don't know about you guys across there, but like in the UK, it's at the cinema right now. So we went to see it and saw it on the big screen, and um, it was crazy. Yeah, it was good. Oh God, I'm definitely interested in seeing that because. I mean, I don't get a chance to go to the movies much. I mean, the only film I'm looking to see, and there's not a theater that has it playing recently, is The Northman by Robert Eggers. And I think he's a unique filmmaker because not just because of his fascinating, because he's fascinating topics that 
are not very much they're not as much popularized. I mean, I can't say that about the Northmen because of the popularity of the show Vikings, which has kind of increased the interest in Nordic culture. And that's a show I've been looking to see for quite some time. And I'm going to see it after I finish Peaky Blinders because I know that the final season is coming to the U.S. I know that the U.K. had it early on. So you pro- I, don't, I don't know if you've, are you a fan of Peaky Blinders? Uh, my wife has watched this. She's watched pretty much the whole thing. I've seen snippets of it, but... Um... I find it hard to sit and watch like a TV show because there's just so much of it in terms of volume to get through. I find it, unless I, like, I'm really into something, I find it hard to like to, to sit and binge stuff like that. As much as like I would love to do that, I find it hard to commit the time to it. Are there any particular shows that you've had on the radar? Yeah, I mean, I'm watching uh, Ozark at the moment. I'm working my way through that, which is great. I think I'm on like season three, so I'm not right up to the, the end of it yet, but like, like Ozark, uh what did i watched before that i probably watched the new stranger things that just came out like over the weekend so i'll probably catch up with that um i don't know i probably i probably re-watch older movies more than i watch tv yeah i can understand that but i mean when it comes to the, those two shows i only watched the first season of stranger things and those are two shows that are still on my radar because i've heard stranger things has changed has changed a lot so i then again, I can't really know. I'm currently watching Afterlife with Ricky Gervais because I'm just curious. Because oh, yeah. I saw a uh, like story of old analysis of a, the, of, a sh- of a comedy show. And I've always been a fan of British humor. And even though I've, I've never been into the, the, the modern office with Steve Carell, and I, even though I'm a big Steve Carell fan, but I feel that because of my love for British humor and it's more eccentric and artistically tasteful approach, I feel I would like the original office by Ricky Gervais more because they have the British have like a very dry sense of humor that is just hard not to laugh at. But even in serious shows like Peaky Blinders, you can find some of those vile things these guys do to be, well, I mean, not funny, but you can, there are the way they joke about it to be funny, but just like you said, we said earlier, the video essays on YouTube are becoming like the new cable television. In many ways, television is becoming the new cinema. And there was a video yeah. on it on the show Mr. Robot a few years ago. And I don't know if you've seen Mr. Robot, but that's a great show. Yeah, I've only seen a couple of episodes of it. I, I've heard really good stuff about it. I would like to probably watch it, but I've never seen the full thing yet. Oh, God. Well, I, I guess my my la- my last bits of questions are since i'm sure you 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 got you have to, things to do is uh are there any projects that you'd like to just talk about that you that you're working on that uh you like to mention in the channel um channel wise i'm probably going to try and make like a um like a run of videos soon i think just before when was it maybe like six months ago i did like a run of videos i think i did like six and then took a break just because of other things that were going on in life. And I'm probably going to try and make another run of videos soon. Um, I have the first one already pretty much finished. So I just need to like edit the last couple of bits. And then I'm not sure I have a, I always have like a list of video ideas. So I have like a two or three page list of like what one to do next. So I don't know what, what's going to be next on the list. Um, and also like different videos take different lengths of time. Like it took me like a, like I was saying, like a year and a half to make that William Goldman video just because like of 
I, I kept coming back to it and kept coming back to it and I never just got a roll on it. So that took forever. But then as soon as that was finished, like I made a video on the sound of metal within like a week and just like kind of felt like I was back in that creative kind of zone again and just got excited about finishing something and then just went obsessively into something else. Um, so I don't know how long it'll take to kind of make another run, but I feel like once I get the first one or two going, I can I can maintain a pace for a while and it's easier to, to keep going. The hardest thing is to like start again and kind of get back into the swing of things. Okay. And this may feel like a redundant question, but uh, I always ask like, where can people find you? And I know you have your website, your YouTube channel and your social media links, but are there any other links you'd like to share of where people can find you if they want to like, just learn more about you? Um, YouTube is probably the best place to go to in terms of like a, a catalog of all the stuff. Um, I do have like Instagram and Twitter and stuff like on the links on there too. So you can kind of reach me through that. But I try to very purposely not be very like active on those things so that um, as like somebody trying to juggle all these different things in life and then also be creative that I don't also have another social media distraction uh, on 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 your time you know so um like i not that long ago bought one of those little nokia phones like from the the 90s and used that as my phone and kind of got rid of my smartphone for a while and that was very freeing because um you, you just don't have any distractions so you just have a lot more mental space to kind of daydream about writing or think about projects or take little notes on things you were thinking about um and i'd like to go back to that maybe and then I feel a little bit glued to specific types of phones to be able to have um, internet access in case you need to, in case there's an emergency and you have a family or you're stuck somewhere and you need to call something. So I'd like to go back to that, but maybe not practical. Okay, I understand because when it comes to social media, I just, I, I only just post things on the social media accounts I have and that's it. I don't follow any conversations because I think, it can be very dangerous and even distracting in many ways. I mean, it still amazes me that that somebody can be on Facebook or, or Twitter for like five hours and not even if it's, and even if it isn't like an argument over something dumb, but uh, yeah, I'll be sure to share your links. I'll be sure to share your channel just enough to get people aware about you. And uh, I want to know if I could ever send you any of my writing material for you to look at, because I mean, or if you ever want to send me any of the stuff you're writing just to look at it, because I work as a freelancer and uh, I've edited scripts, I've reviewed them. And I just in case if you want to share your work with me and I can share my material because I've mostly I've written a feature length and I've written short film scripts. And I'm actually writing like it was interesting that you mentioned two hostage movies because I'm writing something that's hostage based. If it's more comedy oriented, like dark comedy, but I'm not sure if it's going to be feature length or a short film because I'm still in the process of getting an idea. I just have an idea of where it ends. I just don't know how long I would have to go before it ends. But uh, if you'd like to see my material, I'd. Uh, yeah, absolutely. One of the things I did when I was going through a story period of trying to study screenwriting was um, write a bunch of stuff myself and was figuring out how to. For, for me to write things and then kind of write something you thought oh that's okay but very quickly realized that I had no idea what I was doing so unless I actually could bounce it off somebody and get feedback from somebody um, that was like the most useful because it was like an objective person giving you feedback that wasn't emotionally connected to anything and they could see things that you had blind spots on that took you 
you know, months forward that you might have never figured out. And you had mentioned writer's rooms earlier. I think I would struggle in a writer's room because there's just so many people and I would feel like I, I would have to be talking just to be heard. But um, I, I, I don't know, I would struggle in that environment, I think. But I found it really useful to have like two or three people that you trust and you know that you can send stuff to and then just jump on a call and chat with and then like really dig into feedback. And so for me, if somebody was wanting to learn screenwriting, finding like a little writing partner buddy that you could bounce things off would be like invaluable and would move you forward in your writing like way quicker than you would by yourself. Well, Darren, your love for for the a lot of the screenwriting books makes me very confident about wanting to share my work with someone like that. Cause I mean, the fact that you mentioned KM Wyland, I'm sure you've read the writer's journey and story. I hope you have the same hatred Michael Tucker has for save the cat that I do, because I was like, I felt very relieved to know that he hates that book. Like I do, because I used to like it, but then when I get to the point of where he starts bashing memento and because it has artistic quality as opposed to commercial quality, that's when I realized that he's not about telling a good story. But yeah, I'll definitely send you some of my work because I would really like to get your get your thoughts on it. And uh, yeah, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. And I, I'll let you know as soon as I upload this episode on Anchor and I mean, on, on the podcast platforms. And if you ever want to use it for like, say you ever get back into doing your podcast, I'll send it to you and you just take the recording for yourself and do what you have to do. But uh, again, thank you so much for this. Yeah, no problem. It's great chance. I'm always uh, happy to talk film with somebody and especially with somebody who's got their own kind of channel and experiment going on. And the same thing happened with me when I was starting things with the channel is you would just reach out and find all these people that are interested in that kind of stuff in different parts of the world. And um, you're all kind of in the same boat together, just figuring things out as you go. And that's why I always like the channel is like a, a documentation of figuring things out and not really knowing what you were doing so yeah always happy to chat oh yeah and uh i've actually reached out to rob ager and so i'm just hoping he gets back and gets back to me but are you still in contact before uh, just like a final question or i haven't spoke to him no in ages the last time i spoke to him was when we did the podcast i check in with his stuff quite often just to see what kind of things he's up to um but he's uh prolific he's always working on stuff and coming out with like hour-long videos and stuff like that so i don't know what his, his schedule will be like but um yeah he's a fascinating guy to dig into no oh, i would love to, i'm definitely going to keep reaching out to see if i can get to interview him but uh yeah again darren thank you so much and i wish you the best of luck in your journey if you ever want to do another interview session like this in the future you just let me know okay yeah absolutely thanks very much thank you this episode of Open Door Films was brought to you by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, then you'll be happy to know it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and you can do it for free. Anchor offers all the creation tools needed for you to record and edit your podcast right from the comfort of your phone or computer. Anchor will help distribute your podcast for you. That way it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and several podcasting 2.0 platforms such as Podfree, Breeze, Sphinx, Podstation, CurioCaster, and Fountain. Anchor can also help you make money from your podcast and with no minimum listenership required. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Go download the Anchor app for free or go to anchor.fm to get started. Also, please like, comment, subscribe, and share this podcast with anyone who loves movies enough to still pay it to the feeder that respected to do as opposed to the streaming platform regime. Every little suggestion helps. Till next time.